this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. I've invited our good friend at Church and Culture, Guy Ricards, to come back again because he is a fan of what I think is one of the great pieces of sacred music written in the 20th century that nobody knows, relatively speaking. We are going to be talking about a piece by Rayfon Williams entitled Pilgrim's Progress, which is technically an opera, but it can be listened to and understood apart from its presentation on stage. Let me remind you that Guy is a music scholar, critic, cultural commentator. He has written two books on composers, including Sibelius. He is a regular contributor to Gramophone since 1992. That's a long time. Tempo and International Piano since it was founded. His recognition as a classical music critic led to him being named Honorary Secretary of the Music Section of the UK Critics Circle. And he also mentors future music critics in a master's program at the University of Hull. Welcome back, Guy. It's good to be back, Dale. Now, before we start this, can you sort of answer the general question of why so few people know this music? That's a very difficult question because... um, it's really a piece that should be much better known, as you've alluded to. It is the summa summarum, if you like, of Vaughan Williams' entire composing career. Its roots stretch back to 1905, 1906. And elements of the opera was eventually finished in around about 1950. He made a few revisions before its premiere can still be felt in some of the works that that go through into the 50s. So it spans almost his entire career, and yet, as you say, hardly anyone knows the music. They know of the piece that it exists. But it's very, very rarely staged. It is quite problematic to stage, um, but because in terms of action as an opera, it's quite static. But then there are a lot of very... But the music more than makes up for it. Oh, heavens, you don't need to worry about the, the stage action because the music is, is, is fabulous and uh, it, it follows the, the essence of the Bunyan novel, if that's the right term for it, um, very well. It's perfectly understandable. Um, there are no liberalizing tendencies in this, in this uh, setting uh-huh. of Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> no, I mean, I suspect that it's... It, it may be because it's a little bit out of time in the right. sense that, that Bunyan's, uh, the, the reason Bunyan wrote uh, the book was because he was in prison, he wasn't allowed to preach, and it was a way for him to, to channel that energy into a, into a work of undoubtedly religious view. For Williams, of course, was had never writ any stage a religious man, spiritual man for sure but, but but not conventionally religious he was never a practicing uh, Christian and uh, I think people just don't know how to place it well um, you and that's why it sort of falls out of people's uh, yeah. uh, view now you have uh, asked that we play a piece that precedes it preceded the finishing of Pilgrim's Progress from a yeah. radio play, 1943. Before we listen, tell us what we're going to hear. So we're going to hear the very um, opening prelude. Now, it has to be said that the original music for the Pilgrim's Progress, for as incidental music for a play, a staging, dates back to 1906 to an amateur production in Reigate in Surrey to the south of London. It was so successful it was taken into London, into the West End. 
um, it becomes bound up with some of other some other music of, of Vaughan Williams, as we will hear. Um, and it is the genesis of the opera that comes. And what we're going to hear now is the first couple of minutes, a very noble hymn tune. It's called York, uh, with uh, words by Milton. Um, and then, if you know your Vaughan Williams, it then goes into territory with, I think, a bit of a surprise. Let's listen. the great Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis showing up at the end of that clip. Yes. It seems that he, um, that Vaughan Williams is obviously associated in some way the Tallis uh, tuned um, with the Pilgrim's Progress. He discovered it when he was working on the English Hymnal in 1905 and 6, just before writing the music to that first production of Pilgrim's Progress, and it, it remains associated with um, his Pilgrim's Progress music into this radio play that was commissioned in 1942 during wartime for the BBC. Um, a, a fairly a long, you know, two and a half hour, three hour production of the first book of the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, the odd thing is that by this time. When Williams had more or less drafted significant portions, if not the entire first two acts of what became the opera. Yeah. And the Talis fantasy in music doesn't appear. There are right. a few very faint resonances. And as we'll now hear, in the prelude to the opera, it goes in a very different direction after that wonderful hymn tune. I, I chose this just because it's great to hear that, that wonderful Well, I think we should listen to the prelude to the finished opera, and this is the recording we're using uh, is that of Sir Adrian Bolt, which I think has been unsurpassed. So let's listen to the prelude subtitled Bunyan in Prison.
A guy, I just love the voice of John Noble. He uh, he does this, but he also did the very best recording of Delius' Sea Drift back in the time. Um, yes, he was a very fine singer. In fact, he took part in one of the very first productions of uh, the Pilgrim's Progress that was done at Cambridge University in about 1953 or 1954, so just after the initial run of performances had gone gone. Um, and he sang, I think he sang the role of Christian. Actually, the, the, what, the person we just heard was actually Raymond Herring singing the part of Bunyan himself. Ah, oh, well, well, he did a great job. The, yeah, did a great um, job. Uh, yeah. Um, well, let's, yes, Noble's track record in, 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 yeah. in Pilgrim goes back a long way. Well, let's listen to Noble now as we move to Act 1, Scene 2, what is called The House Beautiful. And you want to mention something about the Fifth Symphony, I think, before we play this. Yeah, the thing with the Pilgrim's Progress is that there are a lot of, of kind of satellite pieces, there are resonances of it through um, Vaughan Williams' career. This is not uncommon for composers. If you look at Ferruccio Bazzoni, for example, with his Dr. Dr. Faust, going perhaps to the other extreme of uh, um, uh, spiritual uh, type operas, there are something like 24 satellite works that orbit around um, Dr. Faust that he used to work things out, incorporated into the um, into the fine operas. Same, really, with Vaughan Williams, the Motet of Adam for Truth and other little satellite pieces that are around. The Fifth Symphony was written in between 1938 and 43 at a time when the Pilgrim Opera was kind of on hold. Yeah. So he put some of the music into the Fifth Symphony, and then when he resumed com- composition of the opera, it suddenly comes back into um, the music. And this, even though it's so early on, you'll hear a resonant and hear a theme from the Fifth Symphony um, right at the start of this uh, and let me say before we play it, you will rarely hear music more beautiful than this. Let's listen. I have to say this. I think that's exactly how angels really sound. Yeah, they they are the three shining ones on this recording. The wonderful Sheila Armstrong and Maria Haywood and Gloria Jennings. Absolutely. Perhaps we should set the scene here. This is is the house beautiful. This is at the point in the story where Christian, having set off his, his, his family, would not come with him. He wants to... He's concerned by the burden of sin and guilt needs to move from the real world into the, the celestial city, heaven, this is his, his journey. 
he gets stuck by this uh, uh, by the, what's called the wicket gate he needs to pass through it he can't see it but he's guided through and as he begins to move through these different challenges and scenes he's then helped along the way in this instance by three heavenly um, messengers or, or, or guides who just point him in the right direction to carry on and, and this is how the story proceeds well Williams did a very very good job in whittling down there are hundreds of different episodes in, in, in Bunyan's uh, book which is only the first part there is a second book that he didn't set um, uh, whittling it down into just to get the essence of uh, the story so instead of having in Bunyan you might have four or five places where Pilgrim gets stuck we'll just have the one but we'll do it beautifully as we heard now we move into the nocturne portion of this scene why is it called a nocturne, Guy? It's, it's a little bit of an intermezzo between the stories in Act 1. Um, and what we're hearing now is uh, a, an aria by the character Watchful. We all have Dickensian names that give an idea of their character. And this is sung by the great John Shirley Quirk. And it's just a pausing point to allow the audience to gather their thoughts before the next big scene. Yeah, Shirley Quirk's another of my favorite voices, let's listen to the opening of the Nocturne from Pilgrim's Progress. Shirley Cork, by the way, I think has recorded the very best version of Vaughn Williams' mystical song, if anybody's mm-hmm. interested. And uh, now we're coming to the close of the Nocturne and the close of Scene 2 of Act 1. What will we hear now, Guy? So this is just the instrumental, the orchestral cl- uh, close. As I say, this is an intermezzo. And I chose this because just to show musically the, the, the way this um, music faces you know, genius like both forwards and backwards through Vaughan Williams' career. And you will hear our, a minute or so in an extraordinary premonition of the music of the Sinfonia Antarctica. Of course, yes. a few years after the opera was written, he wrote the film music that then became the symphony. And it's just to give a feel of the scale of the music and, uh, and its atmosphere. Let's listen again. We're listening to Sir Adrian Bolt conducting the London Philharmonic Orchestra.
Well, Guy, we definitely hear those Arctic winds from the Seventh Symphony, as you mentioned. Absolutely. And it, it sets up the second act where um, Christian is then met by a herald. He's armed. He goes to fight the, the, the demon Apollyon um, and has various other adventures before ending up we'll hold this in, in the next uh, track uh, at Vanity Fair where um, his his troubles only get worse now I want, before we we're going to take a break and come back to Vanity Fair but I wanted to didn't wind players in orchestras just love playing Vaughn Williams because you're constantly hearing these gorgeous wind tunes pop up absolutely yeah I mean, as far as I know, he wasn't a wind player himself, but he seems to innately know how to write for, for wind instruments. And we heard that wonderful oboe melody in the, the start of The House Beautiful. There's a lovely wind writing um, uh, there and before at the start of the Nocturne as well. I mean, he, he was um, a wonderful orchestrator, understood how instruments worked and what effects he could get from them. And, and Pilgrim's Progress is full of that kind of very delicate writing as well as mass writing as we'll hear in a bit. Well, we'll take a short break. I'm talking with Guy Ricards about the great Pilgrim's Progress composed by Rayfon William. We'll be right back. back with music critic, scholar, and biographer Guy Ricards talking about Pilgrim's Progress, an opera, or as he says, a rather static opera, written by Rayfon Williams. Before we listen to the Vanity Fair, tell our listeners a little bit about Vaughn Williams' other efforts in the world of opera. Well, there are quite a few of them. The Pilgrim's Progress is, is the peak for sure, but um, there are several very good ones. He set a version of The Merry Wives of Windsor as Sir John in Love, based on Falstaff, as a comic opera, which is quite fun. It's, it's no pretensions to, to greatness, I think, but it's, it's a fun piece. There's Hugh the Drover, which perhaps of all the operas is, is one that has the best critical reputation, although it's, it's not done very often. Um, and there's Riders to the Sea, which is a one-act opera. It runs for about 45 minutes based on a short play by J.M. Singh, which I think is the best of them in terms of being an opera, in terms of operatic yeah. skill. Pilgrim's Progress has, I think, unquestionably the greater music yeah. in it. Um, yeah. And it's, although it's criticised as being static, it, it's, he called it a morality, and it is meant to echo the kind of late medieval morality yeah. things. Yeah. the type of theatrical production that you would have had or that Bunyan would have known uh, in Restoration uh, England, um, which were not necessarily always very active. They were quite static. And he's written a piece that's in that flame. And it's just full of marvellous, marvellous music. Well, as we re-enter the world of Pilgrim's Progress... We reach uh, Act 3, Scene 1, where we find him, that, that is Christian, in Vanity Fair. Now, prepare us for that. <laughs> well, hold on to your hat. Let's listen. The den, the den of iniquity, yeah. Let's listen.
the boots on the pleasures of men come and buy, come and buy. Nothing and you so choose while you can so choose while you can come and buy. Well, that was Lord Lechery as sung by Christopher Keat. And the mood of, of that is somewhat chaotic, but it's kept listenable by the sort of grotesque humor, would you say, Guy? Yes, I mean, the, the music, um, because this is in this sort of den of iniquity, has sort of uh, pointers going back to the, the, the devil's music in Job and some of the, 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 the harsher elements of Sancta Civitas, his oratorio, the full symphony, of course, that kind of very darker more dissonant style. It's very cleverly used by Vaughan Williams. I mean, that opening chorus, you can hear this is a first cousin removed of the, of the chorus at the end of Walton's Belshazzar's Feast, which preceded it by mm-hmm. two years or so. Um, and the Lord's Lecturery, this sort of, I'm sure, sort of silky, smooth, tempting kind of voice. This is... You know, this is evil incarnate. He's trying to entice you to doing everything that you really should not be doing. Um, and of course, what happens to Christian is that he falls foul. He says, no, no, this is all wrong. You're terrible people. <laughs> um, and uh, he won't buy anything. And he thinks the whole thing should be uh, um, uh, stopped and so on. So he's then set upon by the likes of Lord Lechery and Lord Hate Good. All the vices show up. And yeah, all the vices conspire. He's put on trial, and then he's flung, surprisingly, into prison. So now, at the beginning of Act Three, C Two, we have Bunyan in prison writing his uh, his book, and his character Christian is also in prison. Let's listen to the Pilgrim in Prison from Scene Two of Act Three. serious mood entering in here which isn't surprising but there also seems like it represents some growth perhaps in Pilgrim's attitude yes indeed I mean the, the whole basis of, of the Bunyan story is about this voyage to self-knowledge as much as anything else this is the low point for Pilgrim when he's stuck in prison he thinks he's abandoned and then he finds, symbolically, that he has the means to escape this 
device that Bunyan wrote in called the Key of Promise, and he's able to then literally walk out of um, the prison uh, and then resume his uh, journey along the pilgrim's way. And so this is the point at which his fortunes having come so low, now it begins to um, they begin to rise up um, and he approaches the uh, the end of his journey. Yeah, I mean, this was premiered in 1951, uh, and that was the period in 20th century history that I think of as the world's going secular. You know, the Time magazine is about to announce that God is dead on the front cover, and this wasn't exactly, this didn't exactly come at a propitious time to be fully appreciated or celebrated. No, you're right. And you know, had had he finished the opera in the 1920s, or perhaps the early 1930s, it would have been better received. I think the 1920s, perhaps, were a little too frivolous. But um, I think coming in 1951, it seemed um, rather old hat. Vaughan Williams seemed old hat music. Right on the end of World War One and Two. Yeah. Um, and I think it's taken a, a deal of time for it to um, come a little bit better into its, its own. Critical opinion is, is better for it, but of course it's an ex- expensive opera to stage. It requires 41 singing roles. Well, you can double up, but it's a big cast. So I believe next we're going to go to Act 4, Scene 2, is that correct? That's right. Now this is, and we were talking about the earlier other operas that he wrote, and I deliberately didn't mention a one actor from 1921 called The Shepherds of the Delectable Mountains, which was a quite separate little piece based on a scene from The Pilgrim's Progress, part of Vaughan Williams' constant and ongoing fascination with Bunyan's tale. And when he was then putting the, the opera together in his final stages, he reworked uh, The Shepherds of the Delectable Mountains into Act 4, Scene 2, and a little bit of into Scene 3, um, because it was basically in the same, absolutely in the right place, shall we say. Um, and so what we'll hear now is the opening of um, that scene. He's Pilgrim has met Mr. Byans, who's a kind of companion for him a little bit, and they approach now um, this this wonderful um, pastoral uh, area, and they meet some shepherds, who we will hear singing in a moment. Let's listen.
this beautiful singing. Now, who is the tenor? What character is the tenor that enters in there, Guy? So you have um, the three shepherds who are um, Terence Sharp, um, Robert Lloyd's bass, and then the, the last one is Winford Evans, who's the tenor. And then right at the end, you hear Christian come in saying, whose delectable mountains are these? Which is, of course, John Noble. But the, 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 the other tenor is Winford Evans. A wonderful singer. It really is. And, you know, is that one reason why this uh, does not get performed that often? Because it just requires so many good singers. I, I think so. It, 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 it's not just sheer numbers of people. It is a big cast. But, yes, that you, you need high-quality singers. Williams' music is never easy to play. I mean, he did write some pieces for amateurs and had to sort of scale his style down or adapt his style to it. But his, his, his music is genuinely quite difficult to play and to sing, so you have to be really on your game to um, uh, to perform it. Um, and we mentioned earlier, um, to that very point, about how well Vaughan Williams wrote for wind players, but that opening viola solo... Yeah. You can hear it's not diff- it's, it's not an easy thing to play. It's very difficult. It's kind of angular going over, and yet it sounds utterly wonderful. Well, we're going to now hear Pilgrim reaching his destination in Act Four, Scene Three. What should we listen for? Well, um, we'll hear initially um, a heavenly voice sung by Doreen Price, um, heralding the fact that Christian has now arrived in the celestial city. And all I will say at this point to your audience is, prepare to be uplifted. Let's do it. Let's listen. I'm thinking of the end of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Mahler's Second Symphony, Mahler's Eighth Symphony. There are some others I'm not remembering right now where heaven is, as it were, uh, proclaimed or the presence of something divine. Uh, yeah, you it could, seems could, to me that, that Van Williams holds his own with that. Symphony as well. I mean, it's heaven storming, wonderful um, music. Absolutely. And it's placed perfectly at the end of the penultimate scene, just before the final epilogue, which is quite short, which goes back to Bunyan Prison. It is the climax of the opera. It's the climax of Bunyan's original tale that the Christian has made it to the celestial city. And 
you know, what was to come afterwards was he wrote a sequel, in good Hollywood fashion, I suppose, but there is the, the, the sequel of his wife, Christiana, and the four children, who then, hearing that Christian has made it to the special city, then set out on the same journey. So you know, there's, a, there's a certain amount well, of... Well, I think we should encourage some of our contemporaries to go after that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and because he, well, Williams never said that he concentrated on the, the, the original one, which is, you know, I, mean, he, I think he, as I said earlier, he, he fashioned his opera by trimming out all the excess and concentrated on the essence of the story, and I think he got it absolutely right. However difficult this may be to stage dramatically, musically, it works um, perfectly. I find it very hard to believe, Guy, in spite of Ray von Williams' protestations, that he was non-religious. I just don't believe anyone without some sort of deep spirituality would be able to write this kind of music. Uh, it, it can't in any way have rubbed across his grain. I mean, this was this is in the grain of Ray von Williams. Yeah, well, of course, he was, and I think it's fair to say, he was culturally a Christian, if not entirely um, religiously one. He was a spiritual man, undoubtedly. His father was a vicar, so he was brought up in a very culturally and religiously Christian household and moved away as an adult from um, that direct against it through atheism to what his widow Ursula called a cheerful agnosticism for later years. But as she confirms he was never a practicing Christian. What he thought between his ears, on the other hand, is, is different. I think you know, he, he may have had a, a privately his own way of um, being religious, and uh, this is an expression of it. Well, let's then listen to the epilogue. What, what should we be listening for here? So this is basically the last verse where Christian having arrived, the scene goes back to Bunyan prison, so this is now Raymond Herrings coming back um, to just to close off as the final valediction, the words being this book will make a traveller of thee um, and just to hand off to the um, to the uh, to the audience and, and round it out very very nicely very quietly um, concentrated now back on the author of the tale rather than the subject. And this would be R- R- Ramund Herricks singing? R- Raymond Herricks, yes. The, yeah. Uh, um, okay. The Let's listen. Uh, right, sir.
I want our listeners to know that this recording of Pilgrim's Progress, as conducted by Sir Adrian Bolt, can be heard for free on YouTube. Uh, I believe, Guy, the whole the whole opera can be found there, although in in sections. Yes, um, you will find um, a, 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 there's a set a playlist that has been constructed that plays the opera from start to finish in sequence with with no gaps. Uh, I can't promise that there are only has pops in there, but uh, in general, if you play, you can play it through from start to finish. It runs for about two and a half hours, so it's, it's a major piece. Um, uh, but it's well, well worth spending the time to get to know. And there is another recording, which is quite good. I think we should mention it. It's from 1997, the Bolt being 1971, conducted by Richard Hickox on Shandos. And uh, would you care to comment on what might be the difference between the two overall recordings? The, the, the Hickox set is, um, was recorded digitally. It's sonically more precise, if you like, or, 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 or rich. Chandos has a recording label like warm, rich sound in their recordings, and so they um, uh, they deployed all their artistry um, there. So it is, I think, uh, a sonically uh, richer experience. There's a reasonably good cast um, for the Hickops uh, recording. It's well played. However... <laughs> forced to choose, I have to say that the Bolt cast is better still. It includes people we've not heard from in tonight's program, like John Carroll Case and uh, Alfreda Hodgson, Norma Burrows, um, Sheila, Sheila Jennings and John Shirley Quirk. It's like a roster of the best English singers of um, the late 60s and early 70s, even a very young Wendy Eaton. Um, crops up in, in the cast and I think Bolt gets to the heart of the spirituality of the piece a little bit more than Hickox did but Hickox is, is a very fine no it's very I, and if we didn't have I, the Bolt to compare it with I think we'd be perfectly happy with Hickox I have compared some of the major scenes between the two and I find that Gerald Finley singing a Christian is very satisfying, but it's more operatic than John Noble. I think that's right. I think that that's partly because Finley is a trained operatic singer. Noble wasn't. He was, if memory serves, a chemistry student or an engineer who sang as a as a kind of hobby part time. Hmm. That's why he was involved in the Cambridge University. He was at Cambridge University. He was in an early production of. The Pilgrim's Progress in 53 or 54, something like that. Um, and he comes at it, I think, through a slightly different viewpoint. From the He's, he's singing it as sacred music. I think he was, yes. I think a lot of them probably were thinking that this is sacred music. It's like Bach. And right. I think the Chandler's Hickox and Finley and Co. tried to do it as an opera. Both approaches are fine. Yes. Uh, hey, Guy, we've come to the end of our time. I'll, sure. I want to thank you again, Guy Ricards, for taking the time to be on Church and Culture. Oh, it's entirely my pleasure and, and with such a subject. I mean, I and we always play the most beautiful music for our listeners. That's what we hope. That's what we do. And we will the next time you're on. And I'll say to all that are listening, I'll be back in a moment with another wonderful guest. <laughs> 